if you're going to be a great manager or director or whatever, your people need to respect and almost love you. And I know that sounds like strong language, but the only way that happens is if you you pay attention, genuinely care, and you take care of them when they need it. A lot of this comes from from other people, but if you if you do those things, your people will do almost anything for you. And I think that that is something that you don't understand about your current manager, maybe. Mm. The amount of things that they're doing to take care of you that you just never see. The angry customers, the complaints from other managers, all the stuff that you just never see. And then some of the things you do see are much harder than, than you may think they are. You know, that a promotion that, that an employee earned sometimes takes an awful lot of politics to get pushed through all of the all of the hoops that it needs to go through. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Jeremy Steeden, Director of Security Operations and Engineering at Alina Health. We talk about his unplanned move into leadership. This is after a long and comfortable run as a security engineer. Interestingly, he's now on a journey to become a CISO himself. One day, you're a security engineer focused on your own role and tasks. The next, you've been asked to step into a people-managing, business-focused leadership position working directly for the CISO. How do you go from minding your own business to being wholly focused on the dollars and cents of the business, all while taking the best possible care of your team? Jeremy, if you would please, for the uninitiated, introduce us to you. Who are you? So my name is Jeremy Sneeden. I am the Director of Security Operations and Engineering for Alina Health in Minneapolis. And Alina Health is a 12 hospital, 2400 bed, plus 100 plus clinics, pharmacies, and other things, healthcare provider. So a very wide range of things to protect. Absolutely. We have all kinds of things that we're, we're trying to deal with. Now, today's show is going to be, I think, a little bit unique. Because based on the introduction, Jeremy is not yet a CISO. And the purpose for this that I think is extra interesting is that we're going to talk a little bit about his journey of moving into management, what he does today, and where he's going, which includes a goal to become a CISO, which I know many of the listeners uh, fall into this category. So this is a, a little bit of a twist. The other thing that I think is interesting is Jeremy actually getting out and doing this podcast is also a goal, meaning working on how do you manage an audience, uh, how do you more clearly express yourself. So this is going to be incredible fun, and I hope it's enjoyable and useful to uh, the listener. I, I, I know it will be. So thanks again, Jeremy, for joining us and for kind of covering these topics. I'd like to start back with kind of your role right now. So it might be easier to describe what it is you don't have responsible for if you would quickly. Yeah. So I, all of the technical security folks at Alina report up through me 
And so that includes threat and vulnerability, identity engineering, identity administration, security and access operations, medical device security, and I also have IT asset management, which is a newer, a newer thing for me. The pieces that I don't have are really GRC and risk assessment. Those, those do not report up through me. Okay. And to set the stage for the listener as well, you had a long career as a technician before your newer sort of move into management. Maybe talk about that just for a quick second so the listeners can be like, hey, he's just like me. Uh, what, what, was, what was that runway like from technician to management to director? Yeah, I really grew up as a network administrator. And then as my career advanced, um, security kind of became a thing somewhere somewhere as I was as I was working as a network administrator and I thought it was interesting. So I moved into security. I still kind of view myself as a security engineer. I've been doing that for quite a while now. But uh, I almost fell into management accidentally. Our, our manager, our manager left the organization and I picked up a few of her duties because I was the most senior security engineer. And at the same time we hired a new CISO. And one day he came to me and said, Hey, you're the manager now. So I kind of backed my way into it. And that's that I think is is it was somewhat reluctant, but it's been really good for me. I've learned a ton of new skills, but I've also had to learn that management is not uh not engineering. It's a very different <laughs> skill set. As you mentioned in the beginning, part of my growth is is trying to present better and trying to get out in the in the community a little bit more as a as a manager director so that's that's why i'm here so i love that uh and this i think is a fun platform to help explore that and kind of flattered that this is all kind of coming together the way that it did not only is it helping you but i know there's many people who either by design or by accident have fallen into this i had uh, a mentor figure that was very active in my career that made the comment, said, you need to move into leadership. And my statement for those, I've probably said this on the show before, but my statement was, that's a terrible idea. I was always on the technical side or maybe even design. I always felt like I was, I tried to be a leader always, but I was never management. I always thought I was better suited in another role. And the topic kept coming back up and finally it sort of happened. And, you know, boy, was it a, is it, was it a rush? For a lot of different reasons. And the thing I think that's important to share is I had this long list. I actually wrote it out in a notebook of all the things I was worried about, all the things that I was scared of, where I thought I'd fail. And I don't know if this is some sort of grand trick that was played on me, but not one of those things became a problem. It was a whole list of things that I didn't think would happen, but did that were challenges and hurdles. So when you had someone come by your desk and say, hey, I'm the new CISO, and now you are in charge of X, how did you feel? What time of day was that when they came by to your, what, what, what time was it in the morning or was it at the end of the day? It was just a normal day. I don't, I don't remember the exact time of day. At first, I, I kind of told him he was being silly. And then he said, no, I'm serious. I, I think you should take this role. And uh, then I was just terrified, to be honest. It's scary. I never viewed myself as a manager. I had no idea what to do. And at least at Alina, we don't provide a ton of manager training. We had like a four-hour course, and then they gave me a book called Being the Boss. And that was the extent of my manager <laughs> training. Let me stop. So that title of that book is even questionable from my perspective, which I'm, I'm no authority on anything. But like, 
even from a language choice perspective, you know, being the boss for a new manager, that's probably not the way because you're amongst a group of people that were just recently your peers. And so now if you're going to carry your book around called Now I'm the Boss or Being the Boss, hopefully the rest of it was good because starting out, it sounds like it ought to go in the trash. Yeah, the training and the book honestly weren't that great. And I, I think that's a common problem. We don't train our managers very well. We take our best technical people, and I've been guilty of this myself since I've moved to the director role. Take our best technical people, we move them into manager roles. We give them some kind of overviews, but we don't we don't get real specific with the things they should be doing. And so the training I got didn't feel real great. Um, didn't feel like what I had been doing that was making me successful. And so I started going out and trying to figure out what makes a manager successful. And, and you know, I landed on a couple of people that resonate with me. Sure. Simon Sinek is one of them. I think his message of taking care of your people is how I got the manager role. I was doing things because no one else was doing them and they were helping the team, the team out. I was also already that mentor figure. That's what put me in the role in the first place. So I, I think finding a philosophy like that that matches your style and then and then embracing it and learning more about it is is much better than than the four hour course and being the boss book. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And for those that might not know, Simon, I don't think any time you spend reading and researching about Simon Sinek and his his um just his philosophies. You can follow him on LinkedIn for snippets that he shares. He's got great books. Absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And really I think pivotal in a in a lot of some of the thinkings I had and and reinforcing ideas that I thought I had that I probably just borrowed from someone else. But the idea is that you need to change the way you think and and the best leaders do things to eliminate fear and to make people feel safe that generate uh, high trust interactions. Most recently, he was talking about how the Navy SEALs and specifically SEAL Team 6 choose members. So you're already the best of the best of the best of the best. But in particular, they said, look, we may not be that critical comparatively of your technical skills, meaning shot placement or some other set of experiences that aid in the mission. They actually value trust higher than any other measure. So they want high trust individuals. So not necessarily high talent. And I find that fascinating from a standpoint that we don't teach trust, number one, and we don't measure trust. So you being a student of Simon, maybe I don't, I'm putting you on the spot, but in your journey, being a mentor and then sort of the de facto manager and then director, does that resonate? Absolutely. Especially with the types of people that, that gravitate to being security engineers, kind of the older school dictating management style, just, it just doesn't work. And if you really just take care of them, these people want to work on interesting problems and they want to work in security. They've made these choices. Generally, they're, they're very bright people. If you can just get them in a situation where they're working on something that they want to work on, and keep everything else out of their way, you get really good results, or at least I've gotten really good results with that type of that type of philosophy. And my job has really become more of just getting things out of their way more than it is doing anything. They come to me and say, "Hey, I want to do X, Y, Z. Um, here's why we need to do it before before we have this problem." And I just say, "Okay, what do you need?" And we go from there. And 
that for me works much better than me trying to trying to dictate that hey we need to do these 12 things right i think you make a good point where i thought it was and it sounds like you believe that it's the way i would say it is is it's our job to make sure our staff the people with which we work are expensive and the way you get there is you work on the most difficult problem possible you work on interesting things so you cut out barriers which is what you said but you also try to get rid of the the things that drain energy the things that apply to the monotony of the day the low value high volume things and i think that that's a you know keep them expensive expensive to themselves expensive to the market expensive to the company meaning if they're continuing to learn and grow they're they're growing in many ways and expensive is a little bold but you get my meaning what are the ways that you work to keep these barriers again as a relatively new manager you've been doing it a while now though or director i should say more fairly but when you're talking about clearing obstacles what is that as a former engineer and trying to manage a team and lead a team what is that how do you keep them going it can be a lot of things but the primary ones at Adelina are getting the tools that that we want to work on and that can actually do the job part of the part of that just the acquisition process getting the tools the second thing is is eliminating the things that don't bring value to that particular person daily huddles for example some people hate them and they're they drive a huge they're huge dissatisfiers other people like them trying to balance what each individual needs so that this question is this question really varies from individual to individual in my perspective some people can't answer emails and don't want to go to the daily huddles and they just want to be heads down and do their work and they'll report in when they're done at the end of the week. Um, other people need that human interaction, especially with with us being fully remote. They need a little bit more of the the daily touch points and the manager talking to them and, and keeping them updated and checking off the tasks. So I, I, I think it really varies by individual. Um, the one that's consistent across the board is getting them the right tools to to do their job. You mentioned something there that, that is true, but kind of surprised me a little bit, but it, it is a pain in the rear end to, to kind of manage is if you're a technician, you request things and you hope they show up. When you're in leadership, that's not the case. You have to justify new expenditures, especially in a vertical that you're in where budgets are often very tight as it relates to technology, speaking in general terms. So there's this whole sort of justification cadence there's the budgeting there's windows that you can and can't budget there's even then acquisition challenges sometimes and there's rollout schedules and all this how big of a change was that for you meaning going from technician to leader and now you're introduced to this entire process that's in most organizations a nightmare i won't pretend to know what it's like uh, in your organization but just in general terms how much did that play into it for you yeah, starting from very limited knowledge, because as a as the engineer, you're right. You ask for something, you wait around for a few months, and it either shows up or it doesn't. Right? You don't see you don't see any of the background. Learning how to how to get the things that you want in an organization is it's a tricky skill. Um, what I found is that that we do two things that are pretty effective. One is we talk in dollars and cents pretty much all the time. We don't say hey this is high risk this is low risk very often we say hey this is high risk if we have this event here's what it's going to cost here's what the mitigation costs 
that makes those decisions quite easy. In many cases, you know, if the potential loss event is huge, the likelihood is fairly, fairly good, and the, the mitigation is cheap. We just do those things. The second thing that we've done that I think is very, very effective is partnering with our infrastructure groups. Hmm. We, we typically want the same things. They don't want to support ancient servers. They want to patch things and keep them up to date and keep them uniform. They don't want random vendors putting stuff on our network because it creates headaches later. A lot of the things that we want, they want. And so we go together. We go together to get money. I need storage for logs. They need storage for file shares. We go get that together. So that that partnership has been really, really important for us to, to get the parts and pieces we need. Now, dollars and cents and partnerships probably wasn't on your radar before you became the manager, before the CISO came by. How, how did you begin to learn that or think about that? Not, not, not to say that you were ignorant to it before, but until you've got to create the narrative and build the PowerPoint and all the stuff that happens, until you've had to do it, you haven't done it. So how'd you get started on that? You know, I have a really good CISO, and that's, that's really the answer. Um, we started talking about, here's the things that we need. How do we get them? And he started asking me these questions. Well, how much do they cost? How much does it cost ongoing? How much risk are we actually mitigating? And can you quantify that risk? And in the beginning, the answer to can you quantify that risk was actually no a lot of times. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we, had to do, we had to do quite a bit of work to, to get to where we could quantify some of our risks and understand the actual impacts to the business. It really, it really meant getting a lot closer to our business, and and that's that's part of that's part of my development and my growth as a as a security engineer. I didn't really care much about the business, you know. I knew I couldn't make the doctors mad by blocking all their email or anything like that. But outside of that, the business didn't matter to me that much. Um, now that I'm in the position I am, we we must support the business with everything that we do. Whether the security engineers understand it or not, it has to make sense, make business sense. And most businesses run on dollars and cents. We're a nonprofit. We provide a, a service to the community. But in, at the end of the day, if, if we don't at least break even, we can't provide that service anymore. Right. So we also operate on dollars and cents. So after, after kind of realizing that, and I'm kind of summing up a, a year's worth of, of struggle in a few minutes here, after learning all that, it came pretty clear. Like I need to be able to talk. I need to be able to talk finance and I need to be able to talk dollars and cents to get the things that I, I want. How do you take something like when you're doing a risk, I mean, because you said adding certain tools and and a tool is different than adding a capability. A tool may add many capabilities, but a tool is still just that right until it becomes something bigger. Right. And, and so there's a translation from tool and the capabilities, capabilities into alignment against sort of the measurement of risk and the impact to it. And then, as you mentioned, the financials, what was the guidance from your, your CISO who is playing this, the, the mentor role on, on step one? I mentioned get close to the business. That, that's, I know that's part of it, but what was sort of step zero there uh, for you? For those that are sitting at home listening to this thinking, okay, like, I think I get it. I want to replicate this. It's kind of the old security story. Know your know your assets, but with a little bit of a different twist on it. So we had to not just know our assets. We had to know how much 
or how important they are in a dollars and cents case. Got it. So we have a medical record system. If that's down, for example, we get hit by ransomware and it, it goes down. What does that cost the business? And and some of those things are actually quite easy to figure out. Um, some of them are not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then some of it's kind of arbitrary too. Like it's because value is beyond individual systems, which is kind of where I was going earlier. You know, there's sort of tool and capability. But on the business side, there's there's interlocking processes that may use multiple capabilities, which actually reside on multiple platforms, tools, servers, IP addresses. Like so it's sort of there's some translation that happens in there at some level, right? If you go and sit down at somebody who's managing billing and look to say, how do you do your job? There's more than than just their laptop, as you well know. Yeah, absolutely. These things are never perfect, right? All of our dollars and cents are still estimates. Like we're we're not we're not down to the thousands of dollars even. But but we get a general idea of the scope of of our immediate threats and in a dollars and cents way. And then and then what the mitigations would cost. You're right. And in healthcare especially, everything is interconnected. Our EMR controls a lot, but it relies on twelve other systems to function properly. So it does take quite a bit to unwind that. I want to go back to when you started off. You said CISO says you're the manager. You were manager for about three years. Then you inherited, was it IAM? Yeah. So when I was the manager, I had threat and vulnerability management and all of the security that really highly technical threat people. When I moved to the director, I acquired IAM, medical device security. And I also, about three or four months into that, I, I also got IT asset management. So I think there's two really interesting areas there. One of which you mentioned, just in general, you didn't know that much about IAM, but there's a lot of effort going on in reducing manual efforts of IAM. As a former technician who probably worked on all the things that, so you had gone from a manager that kind of knew all the stuff that you were doing technically, but you were now the, the leader of it. Now you're responsible for something that you never had to sort of turn the wrench on. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. So my guess was a high discomfort acquisition. And I think that while there was probably also a human response to now I'm a director, now I'm extra fancy. I'm extra fancy. And so there's the dopamine there that comes with that. And then, but I now I have this thing that I'm responsible for that I've never managed. Now, I don't want to get into the individual challenges or details like that's specific to your company. But what I would like to cover is the leadership element and the human element of how do you step through that? How did you make yourself comfortable? If you can share that. Sure. So when I took over IAM, the previous manager had been reassigned and the group really wasn't, they didn't have a coherent anything, really. We had been trying to implement SailPoint. We've been trying to do some automation. We've been trying to reduce the, the staffing for, for several years and we just hadn't made the kind of progress that, that our CISO wanted to make. So not only was I kind of changing positions and taking over a new group that I didn't know much about, it wasn't the high-performing group that I was coming from. So it was terrifying, just to, be, just to be completely honest. I also didn't have the strong technical 
background here. I didn't know how to go into IAQ and build roles, right? Where on the the threat side, I could I could run, I could do basically anything that my security engineers were doing. So to start with, I sat down and I talked to every single person in the group, and I just asked them, "All right, here's what your here's what your job is today. What's wrong with it? What do you like about it? How do we improve this?" What are the easiest things that, that you see that you shouldn't be doing every day? And I stole some ideas from other people who know who know much better than me. This one of the ideas was was is called a focus funnel. And the very first thing is, should we even be doing this? Right. And so I met with literally every person. We talked about literally every task and we said, Hey, should we be doing this? Is this the right thing? If it is the right thing, is it a candidate for automation? And if it isn't a candidate for automation, how do we do it more efficiently? And that's a long process. That took that took six-ish months to kind of start doing that work and figuring those things out. Once I got there, we built a roadmap. I, I had a couple of leads in in that uh, people managers in that in that area, and together with the two of them, we built a little roadmap that said, "Hey, here's the things we're automating." Here's the way we're doing it, and here's why. And we went, we went and got the dollars and cents. It costs us X million dollars to manually provision people. It costs us this much money for people to have to log in over and over and over again during the day. And then we took those those numbers and and kind of went back to to what we were saying. It turned into dollars and cents. If we spend a couple hundred thousand, we can save two million in waste. Right. And I'll tell you that in that world. I mean, when you look at the abuse of credentials, misuse, theft, the involvement within incidents, breaches, lateral movement, sort of the entitlement stacking that happens when people move from job to job and excess access, and also look at the opportunity for outage within IAM, it's, it's really a critical thing. The credential and the management of it and the entitlement management is, is crucial these days. And if you're doing it manually, that's just prone. You're it's just errors and outage and and audits. Yeah, people can't do it. Like it really is that simple. The more people you have involved, the more issues you're going to have. Um, and that's that's kind of the philosophy we adopted. Now we still have. In the last couple of years, we've been able to reduce this manual provisioning by about sixty percent. Right. But forty percent is still a ton of manual things that are happening in our environment. Um, and so we still have a bunch of these these issues. IAM is also really interesting in in the TVM world. You just never hear from anyone. <laughs> like like unless there's an active incident, you rarely hear from anyone. Right. In the IAM world, I started just being bombarded by just random things that that weren't going right because mostly because we had humans doing the doing the work and people make mistakes when they do the same thing ten thousand times. Sure. But there's much more customer interaction, I guess, on the IAM side. And I, that was something I, I didn't even imagine. I started pretty much from day one uh, taking customer complaints, and, and they've reduced. But boy, I, we haven't eliminated them yet. The other thing is the dollar amounts in IAM, at least for us, were much larger than, than some of the TVM things. So it was really easy to get distracted by the waste we're reducing and those types of things and, and not pay as much attention to TVM. But the big breach is always going to be more than, than any waste we're eliminating. So I had to re, 
reconfigure that in my brain after the after the first six months or so. You said a couple things there, and I, I want to go back to the focus funnel. You said the first question, and I don't know at what level, meaning if it's at a task level or a process level, at some level you said, should we be doing this? What was the unit of measure there? What was, how, how big of a question is that? Can you help us with that? Yeah, we didn't have a great unit of measure, to be honest. This was mostly conversations with the staff, and we would say things like, when a new user comes, they get put into the HR system, and then we figure out what their ID should be and give it back to HR. Right. Should we be doing that? You know, are we just adding one to the number? Can we, can we write a script that does it? Can we figure out some way to automatically assign those? Those were the types of questions. I didn't have good metrics around hey, if it's this much effort, we shouldn't be doing it or we should be automating it. Got it. We did try to estimate effort once we got to kind of the end of the process so that we could get the biggest, quickest things done first. So you also said then the follow-on question is, is this a candidate for automation? And I I think automation as a mindset and automation as a skill set are vastly understood and underrepresented just in general in IT at, at a business level. Like I think there should be, and some organizations have this, a group that does nothing but go around and look for silly things that people are doing manually and try to automate it. Like that should be a dedicated and focused and not like a think tank, like actual doers, like people who can actually script and understand this. I'm not even yet getting into the value within security incident response. I'm talking just in general. So the second question was kind of, can I automate this? What was the other output that you had for those that were listening? Is it just is it just things that we're not yet going to automate? Is there like a holding area or was there some other like bucket of was there another question or what what was the other element there to kind of put a cap on the focus funnel? The final piece of the well, so a little bit about automation. We had a bunch of processes that we couldn't we literally couldn't automate because we just said, "Hey, what access do you want?" and let people type into a field. So automation does take some preparation, and that was really the the focus of the question. Is this process to a point where it can be automated? The final part of the focus funnel was to actually focus on the work and do the work. Our IAM teams were, were really easily distracted and spent a lot of time chasing fires. And XYZ doctor has the wrong access and can't get in we have a strike and we have a bunch of contingent nurses that need to come in and it has to happen right now. Those types of things, they spent most of their time chasing fires and not doing their work. And so we we needed to reconfigure the team a little bit, get the fires under control, and then have some people that were just dedicated on doing the day-to-day work so that we had less fires. Which is tough. I mean, you're really kind of breaking it into three pieces, probably more, but the way I see it is you have to have people that are there to get the work done. You have to also have people there to improve the way the work is done. So automation to actually, to get ahead of it, hopefully. And then the piece you mentioned, there's a political element to it. There's a customer service. If you poll most businesses, the two ways they know security most is access operations and the phishing training. Because it's always like a high friction, high impact, like high emotion, you know, sort of the provisioning process. And so you have to quarterback that. And if you allow that noise to go downstream and interrupt daily operations, that's a failure state. 
if you have a team that's trying to make things better and they're interrupted by the politics and the heated customers, that's a failure state. So getting ahead of that is it's tough, especially on a technology platform that you're not that familiar with or an asset class you're not that familiar with, right? That's a hell of a tough thing. And you mentioned it earlier, and I think this is good for the listener. If you're in a situation like this, you know, the provisioning and the stuff that goes on with the credential management, it's like its own little baby sock in a lot of ways. I mean, especially with the details, you're, the things you're managing that you're a steward over, the, the opportunity for risk, the, the opportunity for, for failure, for outage. Oftentimes, an outage is worse than an, than an incident, meaning a cyber incident. So getting ahead of that, that takes some real fortitude. And it always moves slower than, than I think it should do. <laughs> because it, it does, it involves the entire organization. So anytime we change anything on the IM side, it, it really does involve the entire organization. You know, if we change how we do MFA, for example, we have to we have to communicate and do the organizational change management. If we're changing how people request access, or we're we're even if we're making it simpler. In many cases, we still need to do some organizational change management because people have been doing it the same way for 10 years. And we had to fight a lot of that. Um, Your other point about having a team that does automation is is something I learned the hard way. The people that are doing kind of the the stamping out, the putting putting someone in in an AD group over and over and over again, aren't necessarily the people that can can automate that work, even though they understand it can be automated and might even understand the steps to, to get it automated. They don't necessarily have the scripting skills or the IQ skills or whatever skills are needed to, to make that happen. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned, again, for the, for the people who are thinking about going into leadership, and this will sound a little silly, but it's important, I think, to share. I asked you specifically in an earlier conversation, what was the biggest shock of becoming a people manager? And this goes back a bit, you know, you're not really working on this issue anymore, but you said out of the gate, just how much people share, which gets into sort of the human element, which is sort of Simon's cornerstone and elements of personal life. Like what advice do you have those that are, that might not be ready for the shock that you felt? And for those that you know, if you were mentoring somebody on the process, what would you tell them if they've never had to deal with the personal lives of their employees yet, and now you're sort of the person receiving that message to avoid this shock? What would you, is there a, a point of recommendation that you have? If you're going to be a great manager or director or whatever, your people need to respect and almost love you. And I know that sounds like strong language. But the only way that happens is if you you pay attention, genuinely care, and you take care of them when they need it. A lot of this comes from from other people, but if you if you do those things, your people will do almost anything for you. And I think that that is something that you don't understand about your current manager, maybe mm. the amount of things that they're doing to take care of you that you just never see the angry customers, the complaints from other managers, all the stuff that you just never see. And then some of the things you do see are much harder than, than you may think they are. You know, the, a promotion that, that an employee earned sometimes takes an awful lot of politics to get pushed through all of the, all of the hoops that it needs to go through. No doubt. No doubt. And I'll even say, even if you have a bad manager or one that you think is bad, there's a lot going on, depending also on the culture of the company. And 
it takes a lot out of you to kind of be successful, even if you apply yourself daily in dealing with all the politics and then putting your own emotion into, which I think is necessary, into understanding the feelings of the people with which you work with, right? And, and uh, it's a big investment. And that's one of the things that I'm most interested in as it relates to, to you. Your background is similar to my own, where I was a technician for most of my career, and then I move into leadership, and I actually, I loved it. But it forced me to relearn everything. I had to give away all the things that made me, that, that I thought made me valuable before to start from zero. And so you have to have a source of, of what is right and what makes a good leader. And the crappy part is, is there's not a definition of what makes a great insecurity. There's not a sort of a mold to follow. But you adopting, you know, Simon's as, as one of many, I'm sure, one of, you know, his management leadership philosophy is a great sort of cornerstone. One of the things I want to go into is, you know, you have a great CISO. One day you, you told me that you would like to have his job, and I'm sure he's aware of that, but you've got to work on the things that make you uncomfortable. You said even the idea of this show is uncomfortable. Why is that? Why is this show uncomfortable, and where does it fit in your, in your growth strategy? I think it's uncomfortable somewhat from lack of experience and somewhat because it, it goes against my personality to to be out and kind of seeking other people's feedback and, and interacting with people outside of my, my immediate sphere. As a CISO, though, I, I see my boss do this all the time. You know, he's, he, he does this on a consistent basis where he's outside of his immediate sphere. He's either evangelizing for security, he's learning new things, he's, he's interacting with his peers so that he, we can work together to have better security posture. And for me does not come naturally. This is very difficult, and it's something that I need to work on and get more experience at. I'm a big believer in practice. To get better at something, you just practice. And so when we, when we first talked about this, I said, hey, this is part of my growth and development plan to do things like this. I've done a couple of other similar things this year, and I'll continue to do them. I also need to get in front of my organization more. I'm more than willing to let my CISO go out and do the evangelizing. I, I need to do that a little bit more just to get more comfortable with it. Sure. Look, it, one of my old rules, and I found it to be very true, that if, if something makes you uncomfortable or nervous, an opportunity is presented to you. Hey, would you like to speak on this panel? Or hey, would you like to author a chapter in this book? Or would you like to be a podcast host? Or would you like to speak to the media? Or would you like to be our 30B6 candidate, which basically means we're going to, on paper, make you an officer and you're going to speak to lawyers? All these things made me feel very ill. The idea, the prospect of them was scary, but I knew that it was probably the right thing for me to do because it was scary. In fact, in my life, as I look back, I wish I had done more things that were presented to me that made me nervous, that made me feel literally feel ill. And you're absolutely right. You, you have to work at it, and it gets easier as time goes on. I used to be a, just an absolute mess. Even when we started this show, which is not a core element of my career, but I think it's a wonderful platform, has become a wonderful platform uh, to help growing leaders. I was a mess. 
before the show. And now I love it. It's absolutely phenomenal to see that. And so I applaud you for sort of heading straight at the things that make you a little bit nervous and actually having a list and credit to your CISO for sort of helping facilitate this and helping you through all of it. Hats off to both of you. It, it does underscore the importance of having a, a strong mentor, though. Without my, my currency, so I'd probably still be a senior security engineer, and I'd probably be relatively content, but I would not have the skills that I have now. And those are very different skills, and I, I, I enjoy my position. I, I, I like what I'm doing now. I like the ability to, to take care of people. And I think we're making good progress for the organization. And it's nice, it's nice to see something grow that you kind of had a little bit more control over versus just doing the, the task. I want to jump in quickly on a topic of being a manager of managers. You told me how difficult that is. And I would agree that it's sort of this game of telephone, that they'll do X, but maybe not the way you intended. and. How did you approach this effort? How did you sort of let go of that scenario where you're you're not directly communicating the message, someone else is sort of modifying it before they execute? How do you track that? How do you manage that? Yeah, that's definitely been one of the hardest parts for me, especially on the on the threat and vulnerability side, and especially during a crisis. You know, when we have it, we have an incident we're investigating, we have something that's that's very important to the organization going on. And that team is working on it. The reason I originally got promoted was because I was good at doing those things. And so when I feel like I'm very good at doing those things, it's very hard for me to stay away from them. Sure. <laughs> because I feel like I can help. Unfortunately, and, and it took me a little while to realize this, unfortunately, the director jumping in and helping, even though I don't, I don't see myself that way. The director jumping in and helping when you have a manager, you have you have senior security engineers, and you have you have the whole team still. The director jumping in and and helping can can actually undermine the the manager and the team in general. Kind of signals that you don't trust them to do it well. Uh huh. And for me, that was not the intention, but that was the impact. And I really. It took me a couple of a couple of these incidents, and it took my manager coming to me and saying, "Hey, you can't do that. You <laughs> you've got to let me run the team." The other side of that is sometimes when I say, "Hey, please do this for this this particular incident," I mean X, and I get Y, and it's very uncomfortable because sometimes we waste time. But that's something I've I've had to learn to live with, and that has been very difficult. Being a level removed, you get a different type of information, <laughs> and that information doesn't always make me comfortable, right? Right. I'd rather know the exact packet when something's happening, right? Instead, I get, hey, this is what happened. We blocked it. We're not actually worried about it. And I'm like, well, can I see the packet? And the answer really should be no. My current manager will humor me most of the time, show me the actual packets, but that's something I've I've struggled with and I'm I'm still working on to be honest. I would wager that you still need to let go a little bit more where you know you're a director looking at the packets but maybe as an after action exercise two things I think that that you reminded me of and I think is of value is you also need to communicate up. So if there's an incident or a problem with IAM or some sort of incident response scenario, you have to be very open 
with your CISO and other constituents that might put pressure during the process, hey, we're not moving fast enough. Why aren't you going in there and doing that? Well, this is, there's a team responsible for that and they are completing the task now. Right? If I stand over their shoulders, I can't have a conversation with you and they're not going to get their work done as quickly. If there's opportunities for improvement, we'll handle that afterwards like we do every time. Right? We'll have after action or review on how to improve. And that's part of an ongoing process. Like to have some kind of message like that to tell people to stand back a little bit. And this team, this is part of growth. This is part of new leadership. Uh, this is, and you said it earlier perfectly. It's about trust. You have to have that or you will fail so quickly. So I was very happy to hear you mention that as well. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it is easy to say and very tough to do. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, the, the CISO is not looking to those managers or anyone else. He wants the report from me. And he wants me to be very confident when I give it, right? And for me to be confident, I need my manager and my team to do a good job communicating to me so that I can be confident when I communicate up. All of us have had to learn how to do that. And it's not something you get trained to do. It's another one of these manager skills that we just kind of expect people to know without really training people on how to do it. And, And that is something that we've spent some time just sitting down and talking through, hey, this is what happened. This is how you communicated it to us. This is how we want to see it in the future. Or there was too much information here. I couldn't get to what was important. There wasn't enough information here. I didn't know what was important. We've spent quite a bit of time on that over the last couple of years with all of my my people managers, just, just so that both of us can be comfortable. And then when I go to my CISO, I'm confident. He's smart. He knows when I'm not confident, right? <laughs> if I say, hey, yeah, we, we might have this issue contained, that doesn't fly. Right. Yeah, you need different, different phrasing there for sure. Well, Jeremy, this has been awesome. I, I close on the same question. We're going to modify it a little bit today. Generally, the question is, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? But in your case, a CISO in training, uh, what does being a CISO in training mean? To you, Jeremy. Well, I know I have a lot to work on, learning more about the business and finance, doing more of the types of things we're doing today, and then continuing to listen to my mentors, I think is doing me favors right now. And I think <laughs> the other thing is continuing to take care of my employees has, has always has always reaped benefits, and I, I plan on continuing to do that. Perfect. Jeremy, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Yep, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.